everyone, and welcome back to the Whale Nerds Podcast. This is episode 128. My name is Slater, and I'm here with Caitlin. Hello, and we have a special guest this week. We have John Ryan on from Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute. John is a biological oceanographer studying the ecology of plankton, fish, and mammals, primarily through the integration of remote and in-situ sensing technologies. Through science engineering collaborations, this research involves advancing methods of sampling and data analysis. So, hi, John. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Caitlin and Slater. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's been about a year since we've seen you because you spoke at Whale Nerds Weekend for us. That's right. That's yeah, right. You we were hosting, introducing many to the wonders of whales. We got the yes. chance to, to meet those people who were riding a high from your day on the bay. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And that was, I mean, man, that talk was awesome. I love, I love it when you bring the speakers. It's like so fun. Oh, it's, yeah, it's easy to transport a 200 pound subwoofer. No problem. <laughs> it's one thing to hear it, but it's better to feel it. Yeah. yeah. I honestly thought we were going to maybe break the display case. And I was like, oh my gosh, PG Museum's going to like ask us to replace it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's the only way for people to get a feel for those really low frequency sounds yeah. produced by these giants yeah i mean it really doesn't come through unless you have the proper equipment so um so you work at monterey bay aquarium research institute but uh let's talk a little bit about your background first so how did you kind of get started in biological oceanography or like science in general um i was about to graduate from uh college with a degree in management information systems and I went and did a co-op job that exposed me to what that's really like every day. And I realized that's kind of boring. And so I changed my major and I thought, what could be, I want something with philosophical depth. What could be deeper than the science of life? So I went into biology. My school had a pretty good program in marine biology, which gave me uh, the chance to appreciate research uh, of the ocean. And then um, I did try terrestrial wildlife biology with a, a temporary job in Colorado and decided on the ocean. Fortunately, where I was living in Massachusetts, right next door in Rhode Island was an excellent school of oceanography. The University of Rhode Island Graduate School of Oceanography in Narragansett. Yeah. And so I applied there and was fortunate to get admitted and study ocean life. And mostly during those years, I studied microscopic life and the physical processes of the ocean that shape microscopic life. But of course, microscopic life shapes all other life. And right. so, so it's been natural over the years to extend in from the microscopic algae into the zooplankton and fish and now marine mammals through listening, recording and analyzing sound. So have you kind of always studied those animals from the aspect of sound or were you doing like plankton sampling with like nets and stuff too over time? Yeah, the plankton studies would involve measurements of optical properties that can tell you about the plankton, or a number of people at the institute where I work have developed uh, tools that can open up the cells and use molecular analysis to identify who's there and what they're doing. And so I've had great opportunities to collaborate with that team to study plankton ecology. Awesome. So when did it kind of shift more into like directly bioacoustics, like what you do now? Well, our institute, Ambari, has a cabled observatory 
which is um, a connection, a direct connection to the deep sea. A 52 kilometer long cable connects our lab to an observatory on the continental slope just outside the bay. And, you know, this is, this provides continuous, really unlimited power and communication. So um, I and others proposed to put a hydrophone on the cable observatory because then we could just stream sound continuously. And at the time we started, it was just a feasibility study. You know, what can we do with this? Let's explore it. But we learned that much is feasible in research and education and outreach when we tap into such a fundamental aspect of how life works in the ocean, sound. When did you guys start the hydrophone project? We deployed it uh, July 28th, 2015. Oh, so so we, wow. oh, seven years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just over seven years. And we deployed it at right near the peak of the warm blob, the really unusual yeah. conditions in the Northeast Pacific. So that's true. Right away, we were able to capture at least one side of a major change in the ocean. Wow. We didn't catch the rise, but we caught the fall emerging from that um, really exceptional physical anomaly in the ocean. And not surprisingly, we've seen major changes in the um, vocal or sound behavior of whales during that time period. That's, that's so awesome. cool. So, I, oh, go ahead, Slater. <laughs> I was going to say, like, that's such a year to start, right? There was probably so many different things you heard that first summer. So many common dolphins. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> oh, that's yeah, awesome. and just, you know, we're realizing more and more that the um, acoustic behavior of these animals is really a great window into their lives in general. So they're going to, they respond very strongly to their environment on every time scale, really multi-decadal, annual, and even events. And that's what we're learning about most recently, how they can respond very rapidly to changes in the environment. But deploying as we did during the height of the warm blob, we could watch the ecosystem change dramatically and therefore have the ecosystem context for what we're hearing. Yeah. Yeah, it kind of all can come together that way. Mm -hmm. So for people that are not familiar with Monterey Bay or like with where the hydrophone is, can you explain a little bit like where, how far is Smooth Ridge from Moss Landing? Like kind of provide some context as where is the hydrophone? How far down all that? Sure. So um, one of the, major distinguishing features of Monterey Bay is that it has a massive submarine canyon incising the, the middle of it. So splitting the continental shelf of the bay in half because the, the canyon comes to the surface right at um, Moss Landing Harbor, <laughs> right at the entrance really. And so um, when we're thinking about where the hydrophone is, the canyon is a good reference point because it's not just in the bay, it extends all the way to the deep sea floor, far offshore. But as soon as you get outside the mouth of the bay, if you just go north of the canyon, that's Smooth Ridge. It is um, a feature along the continental slope. And our recording location, the observatory, is in 900 meters of water. And so- No big deal. Yeah, no big deal. <laughs> just 900 meters water, it's fine. <laughs> yeah, and it- 
Well, here's what's amazing. You've got this sensitive electronic device, a hydrophone or any other instrument, and you simply go down under tremendous pressure of the water above you, corrosive salt water. Yeah. You just plug it in and it works. It's <laughs> <laughs> pretty incredible. Yeah. Well, but how many miles of cable is it? 32 miles. Oh, uh, yeah. Wow. That's pretty easy to get a 32 long, yeah, 32 mile long cable too. Over canyon terrain. <laughs> they have a and... lot of extension cords. <laughs> <laughs> it was laid in sections by a cable laying ship funded by the National Science Foundation. So yes, it was a big deal. Wow. <laughs> but That's it's created awesome. this, it's, it's create that investment by NSF really created a collaboration hub where many research groups can come together and study ocean processes, taking advantage of the unlimited power and communications. Yeah. How is, so how was the position selected? Because it wasn't originally a multi-directional array, right? It was kind of more like one unit and now it's a it's more like an array where you can get directional information out of it now? Yeah, we started with a single hydrophone. And with that single hydrophone, it, it accepts um, sound, records sound that's incident upon it from any direction. So it's an omnidirectional hydrophone. Mm -hmm. We can hear a sound and identify it and say, ah, that was a blue whale bee call. Mm -hmm. But we wouldn't know where that whale is right. with yeah. that one hydrophone. That being said, it's an amazing hydrophone and it's recording at a sample rate, like more than a quarter million times per second. It's sampling the pressure signal that mm -hmm. tells us about what these sounds are. And that's so that we can study both sounds within our range of hearing, as well as well outside our range of hearing, because that's what the animals are doing. They're right. using sound well above our limit. So now what happened is um, in collaboration with researchers at the Naval Postgraduate School, uh, Kevin Smith and Paul Leary, we decided to try out, plug into the observatory, a different kind of hydrophone. And this one, this first one was just a single hydrophone and it's called an acoustic vector sensor. It measures the pressure signal just like a hydrophone. So you can identify the sound, but it also has an accelerometer, a three axis particle motion sensor. It, it measures the water velocity changes caused by sound itself. And that's what allows you to identify the direction that that sound originated. And so you get a bearing on the call. You can say it's, it came from over there. Okay. Oh, so I need to get Slater's an inside like blown. <laughs> <laughs> I need to get it. I need to get a, a an admin login is what you're saying. <laughs> you you can don't tell know, us where the whales are. Okay, so here's the thing is like, uh, I don't, you've met Kate from Blue Ocean, I believe, but we, like a lot of times in the mornings, early in the mornings, Kate will text me or I'll text her and we'll be like, I hear a sperm whale. Like, where's it at? And like, we'll plan to go way offshore that day, but it's like, we don't know where it's going to be, but we'll hear yeah. it. But yeah. it's like, it's definitely will inspire our, like, it'll change. Sometimes it'll change the direction of our day just by like what we hear in the morning, you know? Yeah, for sure. So it's yeah. pretty cool. Well, last fall, we worked with Jeremy Goldbogen's lab and others. Jeremy's at, at Stanford. Mm -hmm. And that group does the phenomenal work of putting these tags on the backs of whales with suction cups. They stay on for about a day and they give us a view of the life of a whale from its own back. Mm -hmm. And 
we wanted to try to use the real-time hydrophone, directional hydrophone data to say, well, where are the whales today? Where should we drive to try to tag them? And what we, on, when we tried it during that brief outing, um, the whales were further north, so mostly. So we, but we did right away recognize that we can't use yesterday's where were the whales for today. Yeah. yeah. And you know that. You yeah. know that. You, you, you've seen how fast they yeah. move through this environment. Yeah. So we, we need very much near real time pointing. Right. But but maybe one more thought, Caitlin, is a week and a half ago, again, working with Paul Leary at the Naval Postgraduate School, um, we deployed their new system, which is not one acoustic vector sensor, but two. Now- Is that why the hydrophone wasn't working the other day? Um, the, the live stream wasn't working for a different reason. Oh, and it, okay. was, it was a um, sort of a network- problem because oh, okay. this data has to sort of scoot along its path to yeah. shoutcast where we broadcast. And there was just a temporary glitch that we solved. I think oh, okay. it's on. I just we checked saw, it. We saw the Rachel Carson and then it stopped working and we were like, they broke it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, the really briefly that those two acoustic vector sensors together you get you get two bearings on the same call. Yes, yeah, so, so you can more accurate fix. Yes, more accurate. You can, and Paul describes how you can add the signal and get a clearer signal from this same animal, same call. But also, you can look at where do those bearings intersect. Now you have a range. You don't yeah. just know the bearing to the animal. You know how far away it is from the hydrophone. Yeah. Okay. You can, yeah. Go ahead, Slater. That's what I was going to ask you. Is like from the pressure of the sound can you tell how far they are away yeah that's a that's a here's you're on to two things really the um if you were to look at how strong the signal is you might think hey it's going to be a stronger signal if the animal's closer mm -hmm. and a weaker signal if it's farther away so you could sort of estimate about how far away is that animal and we we do try things like that but it's much better to have two yeah. pointers to the same sound and and then get a range from the intersection of the bearings. Yeah, because especially low frequency sound, I mean, it attenuates for so far underwater without losing that much energy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there low, were... low frequency sound would be harder to estimate without two points to reference. Exactly, yeah. Do you have any idea how far away you, the like maybe the furthest away you've picked up a blue whale on the hydrophone? Uh, for our hydrophone, we, we can sort of model that. And again, that's, this is like, Ambari is where the observations are happening. We're listening continuously, but when we want to understand listening to a population or an individual and how far away it can be, we need other tools. We need tags on animals that we can say, yeah. Hey, this animal that was tagged, it called out and it was over here. Our acoustic vector sensor should point to a bearing of 310. Look at that. It pointed to 310. So we, we, we're verifying our methods. But the other key one, this is all observational. It's also critical to get the theory. And that's where other collaborators, Tatiana Margolina, John Joseph, they, they model how sound propagates through the ocean. Mm -hmm. And from that alone, you can say, 
if I'm at this location, considering the properties of the ocean between this point 200 miles away and my receiver, my recorder, and the shape of the continental shelf, will I hear that animal? Or at what sound intensity will be received at my hydrophone? So in answering your question, Slater, there's both um, observational studies that say, hey, we know we heard these animals from hundreds of miles away, or we heard call and response between two animals that were hundreds of miles away. But it's also great to have the theoretical predictions of how sound moves through the ocean. Then you, then you, you have a stronger view of, yeah. of, for answering your question. Yeah. So what you're saying is if we hear a sperm whale on the hydrophone, that's really loud, it may still be really far from the hydrophone. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> um, although much, most of the energy in a sperm whale click, even though it's broadband, most of the energy might be in the uh, two to four kilohertz range compared to a blue whale putting out its strongest signal in a bee call is around 40 hertz. Mm -hmm. So those that's much lower frequency and, mm -hmm. and would travel farther. And the other thing about a sperm whale is we'll hear them much better if their head is pointed at our hydrophone. Yeah. It's not pointed at our hydrophone. Last week, I swear I could hear it like echoing off the equipment. It was like on <laughs> top of it. I just, oh, something you know has what? got to have checked it out. <laughs> I, we have a report from the ship. One of um, Azure, who works on the RV Rachel Carson with Ambari, he wrote me, and I can give you a day and time. He said they were out there at Mars and they saw a sperm whale. Did we hear it? And <laughs> so, All right, we need some new friends on the ship too, Caitlin. I know. We need <laughs> yeah, that there you go. Phone number. <laughs> <laughs> we were at, let's see, I think the morning of the 19th, I think is the morning that I heard it like on top of the hydrophone. And that's the day we saw the Rachel Carson out there. Okay. I am seeing, I got this email from Azure Cohen and Barry. He says, this is on the October 19th, 1144 a.m. Oh, man. We should have yeah. kept going. Yeah. And so here's his message. Hey, John, we have a sperm whale hanging out at Mars right now. Dove about 15 minutes ago. Hopefully you get some good clicks. <laughs> oh, so man. when you say That's Mars, cool. is that out on top of the hydrophone exactly? Or is that yeah. like on the observatory? Yeah, Mars stands for Monterey Accelerated Research System, which is the name of this cable okay. observatory. Mm -hmm. So does the observatory collect other data besides the hydrophone? Like is other equipment plugged into it? Yes, for sure. So if you're studying whales and dolphins, you also might want to study the forage species that they rely upon. And Kelly Benoit Bird, who is um, the director of the research department in Ambari, she really is a leader in the field of acoustical ocean ecology where you study forage species through active acoustic sensing, through bioacoustic surveys. You're, and in the case of the Cable Observatory, there's an echo sounder there, um, not unlike what you might find on a fishing boat. And it's only thing is it's sitting on the bottom and pointing up. Mm. So, and it can read right over the observatory, it can read the fish schools, for example, or any any of the animals that are scattering sound. And so that's one 
instrument that's also on the observatory. There is um, a small remotely operated vehicle that a school runs on the observatory and their students can drive an ROV on the seafloor around there, explore. And it's attached to it? Yeah. Like it's got a, it, what's that? It's like docked down there all the time? Yep. Whoa. How do I get access to that? <laughs> I got stuff to do, man. <laughs> you got to go back to this high school. <laughs> no, they actually, uh, they let other schools, uh, students and drive their vehicle. So let's see what else is on the observatory. Wait, so question, are they remotely driving it from like a computer or are they doing it or they have to go out? This high school's going out on the Rachel Carson. No, they're remotely driving it. Wow. Oh, so there is a website that actually... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Um, wow. So, awesome. okay. So to follow up about listening to the forage species. So like schools of fish and krill and stuff make noise or they reflect noise or both? Both. And this method on our observatory is, is using sound that um, is reflected by them. Okay. You know, it's scattered by them and it's scattered back. Part of that is scattered back to the transducer. Slater, right. Slater and I right. are so arguing the, about this theory. Well, here's the thing is we got to figure out how the heck these humpbacks <laughs> are literally sitting with me and then beelining it six miles and then lunch feeding as soon as they get somewhere. Like, I mean, they're feeding next to me. Then they beeline it out to Soquel and then lunch feed again. Like, you know. How are they can, know? How do they know this school is? Can right they there? like do some sort of basic echolocation, like they're making calls and then hearing the bounce back of the school of fish, or like th are the fish that loud? Like Slater and I argue about this almost There's every day. Something more to humpbacks that we haven't figured out, and I'll f I'm figure it out someday. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's a lot more to humpbacks that we haven't figured out. I think. Oh yeah. But I, you're on to you are hypothesis fountains you two just <laughs> out there with your uh, uh, careful ideas <laughs> naturalist observations it's wonderful so let's think about those two one of them you mentioned is is described in the literature as echoic perception where an animal can read its own scattered sound mm -hmm. and there's some really interesting ideas eddie mercado in particular has put these forward the sonar model for humpback whale song and the, uh, he's even shown how, for example, spectral interleaving, where they can leave a call hanging in the soundscape while they put out another one at a frequency that does not overlap so that they could all, they could collect maximum information from that. Now it's a, that. it's a theory. We don't know it yet, but that is a possibility. I like I, it. <laughs> yeah, I like it too. What I think is more likely though is they listen to um, each other. They recognize the behavior of their own species and other species by listening mm -hmm. to sounds produced that travel far. Yeah. And so I, I, I'll pause there, but there's a reason why I think that. I've got a few things to back that up. Because that's part of what you just worked on, right? Um, it's part of a research that's been happening in this Monterey Bay collaborative community over the recent years. Okay. Well, we have a couple more logistical questions and then we'll launch into the, oh, the yeah. new stuff you've been working on. So question mm -hmm. about the hydrophone. Um, so that way I am going in the right direction. <laughs> Is it about a 15 minute delay? I think you told us at our, at the um, lecture that you gave. 
Yes, 15 minutes because we record in 10 minute files and we never interrupt the recording of a file. Okay. So it's about 15 minutes. So whatever mm -hmm. you're hearing is about 15 minutes ago. Okay, perfect. And then how is the data processed? I think you told us during that lecture last year that you have some AI helping because it's a crazy amount of data, right? Two terabytes a month from one hydrophone. Holy moly. That's expensive because terabyte, like a two terabyte SSD card is 250 bucks or 300 bucks. So, well, plus you got to have a backup and yeah, man, that's just, so how do you guys deal with all that? Well, fortunately we have network storage capabilities at the Institute that can handle this very well. Even so, you know, we're up to about 170, 180 terabytes and keeping that spinning on disk is not easy. And so Dang. we actually do have a collaboration with AWS Open Data. They're sponsoring the hosting of our data for global access. And we wrote analysis tools that people can readily pick up and use in the cloud to analyze the data in different ways. Um, and just for example, you know, we wondered, okay, we put all our data in the cloud. Is anyone accessing it? So we got the access statistics for one month. That was April of this year. And there were two petabytes of access to this archive. So it's clear that making it open to the world gives people the opportunity to use it and they, they will use it because it's good data. Yeah. <laughs> wow. That's cool. A petabyte is what is i'm looking this up what's a petabyte petabyte um is that just is a is a thousand terabytes oh a thousand twenty four terabytes oh. wow Dang. a lot of people are using this stuff it's it seems so and that's exactly what we want because we can never exhaust all the learning that can come from this data we don't have the knowledge yeah. or the tools and it's not just scientists we want to be able to access this it's sound artists and and we have we even wrote a python notebook to help people use it for sound arts wow that's cool yeah i mean we we reference the hydrophone all the time we have the website to the live stream on our website like we love listening to it live and i tell yeah. all my passengers too yeah especially like towards i i feel like i talk about it more towards the fall just because the humpbacks are starting to you know be more vocal for sure um, but yeah, like I'll, I've even put it on in the morning. We like, cause I run my trips before all the other whale watch boats usually, and I'll put it on and I'll be like, listen, there's what you could hear the whales and I'll play it over the speakers on my boat, which is cool. Great. So it's fun. That's a, that's a gold star application of our live stream. <laughs> <laughs> and so we had a realization today. This is maybe not for the podcast, but just for your info, you know, We've been saved by our loyal listeners sometimes. Like people say, oh, hey, is live stream down? And we've sometimes realized, oh, the recording accidentally stopped. So that allowed us to restart recording, which we didn't lose that data as much, yeah. lose as nice. much data. So thank you, loyal listeners. There you go. And what we decided at a meeting today is let's put, we're going to put a little contact. If you go to the live stream and you hit play and nothing happens, you can hit a contact and we'll know right away. Oh, cool. There you go. Yeah. That'll be cool. Yep. Yeah. It'll be Kate, me, Kate, me. It'll be, it'll be the two of us yeah. and Kate. <laughs> <laughs> You'll know like instantly. 5 a.m. We're like, that thing ain't working. <laughs> I, I get up early. That's fine. 
perfect. <laughs> so there's a whole like collaborative network of people using this observatory to answer questions. Um, and you guys have, you and Will have worked a lot on understanding patterns of blue whales using the hydrophone data. So I don't know if you want to kind of like introduce kind of just the whole project or how you want to start that with introducing what everybody's doing and that what you guys just published. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Um, I think I want to start with the concept of community that you introduced because the Monterey Bay research community is really rich with um, individuals and labs who have different specializations, different strengths. And we need all those specializations and strengths to understand the complex lives of whales and dolphins, marine mammals, and their ecosystem. So, you know, the uh, the labs I'm talking about, I've, I've already mentioned some of them, the Goldbogen Lab at Stanford, where they're able to um, observe whale behavior when the whale's out of sight by putting those tags on, which can measure the environment, the animal's movement, its location by GPS, its heart rate, you know, as they did fairly recently. And um, that's essential because when Will Astrike started doing his dissertation research with us, um, it was Jeremy Goldbogen who said, oh, all right, Will, you're interested in studying whales with this tag data. Why don't you also see what you can do with the Ambari hydrophone, which is listening to the whole regional population? That might be, that might be effective. And, you know, Will did such a phenomenal job of bringing together the individual and the population level perspectives for his research. Um, so those, and then of course I mentioned earlier the when we when we get into the most recent paper, uh, this acoustic vector sensor technology is, um, you know, it's available to this research team and collaboration because of our friends and colleagues at the Naval Postgraduate School. This is not technology I was familiar with at all, but I am. Uh, I love data. And when I got a chance to work with data that can point to whales, um, you know, Paul Leary set me up with daily files, uh, which are basically, they're matrices of sound energy as a function of time and frequency. That allows me to identify the calls. Oh, a blue whale is calling now. Mm -hmm. And I can zero in on the maximum energy of that call the maximum signal strength, move over to the, the bearing array that says, where did that sound come from? And just pull out the bearings to whale calls. Yeah. But I could not have touched that research without the huge foundation that the Naval Postgraduate School put in place on our observatory. Yeah. Um, so these are some of the, the people. There's John Kalambakitis with Cascadia Research Collective, who... Uh, he and James Fallbush and, and Dave Cade and others, uh, Ari Friedlander in this region, people who actually get right up to the animals and, you know, with tremendous skill and respect, they're able to deploy technology on these whales. I'm just blown away by that. And that's an essential window uh, in, in the research that was just published and in a series of papers that have given us a view of blue whale ecology that we never could have otherwise had. 
Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty phenomenal to like see what the whale sees and be able to understand how the whale moves in time and space when it's feeding. And yeah, it's pretty incredible. Yeah, and in the case of Will Astrike's first thesis um, paper, at least his first thesis paper on blue whales, the key was this. What the what the tag tags deployed on blue whales, 664 hours of tags deployed on blue whales, told Will was that something we were hearing in our hydrophone at the population level could be explained by individual behavior. Mm-hmm. And specifically what, when Will and I first started looking at blue whale song by tracking one of their calls, it's the strongest, longest duration call that they make therefore a very good signal for us to work with. And we noticed that there was a seasonal shift in how much the whales were singing day versus night. Well, that's, it was a very clear, robust signal, but there's, we, we couldn't interpret it without knowing individual behavior. And so Will took all that tag data um, and revealed that when blue whales are making that transition from foraging building up their energy stores for long distance migration, breeding, calving, rearing young. They're they're up here very focused on foraging all day. When they're when you see on the tag that whale dives down repeatedly all day, going between the surface and krill swarms at depth br- taking in those calories. And then when they decide to migrate south to low latitudes for the breeding season, the, um, one of the tags clearly showed the animal stopped feeding completely. And instead of singing mostly during um, the night because they were busy foraging during the day, they began singing much more during the day. Mm. There's probably a simpler way to say that. I can try that again, but... So it's like when they're traveling... They're more, they're more like when they're, they're actually on a mission, they're more vocal. It's like they're singing yeah. to the beat, you know, they're cruising. Yeah, they're cruising. And further, instead of singing more at night, they, this, this one individual that was tracked for a month started singing much more during the day. Wow. Interesting. So when so we kind of like, it's breeding time, I'm going to start telling everyone it's breeding time. Yeah, you know, advertisement is known to occur in the animal kingdom and maybe or maybe it's just um yeah, maybe it's just warming up to sound really good on the breeding grounds or yeah. <laughs> maybe yeah, it's uh you know maybe it's things we can't understand unless we're a whale. <laughs> yeah. I think a lot of it is that for sure. Like humpback whales during breeding season, they're singing all the time. Mm-hmm. Night and day. And yeah. so, and then it, right now you can turn on the hydrophone on the live stream and they're pretty much singing all the time now too, you know, as they're getting ready to shift into migration and breeding mode. That's right. We're in a great season for the live stream because particularly for humpbacks, which will come through any speakers, you're going to hear a whole lot of song. Um, blue whales and fin whales are singing their hearts art as well right now, but you won't hear them through most speakers. So uh-huh. if anyone does want to experience that more full orchestra of the ocean from the baleen whale choir, I would recommend even a simple subwoofer will allow you to begin to hear those blue and fin whale calls. Oh, that's cool. Definitely. So 
you can hear non-animal sounds as well on the hydrophone right like especially we hear wind sometimes i check to hear the wind and i go oh it's not nice offshore it sounds really loud today or you can hear the rain or you can hear earthquakes we've talked about that before too that's weird that you can hear the rain though i don't know why it just seems weird well i guess it's only 1200 feet up right you said it's 300 meters down it's actually no, 900, 900 meters. meters, almost uh, 3,000 feet. Yeah. And, you know, I actually play the sound of rain often so that people get a sense of how well sound travels in the ocean. Mm-hmm. Here are these little raindrops, tiny little raindrops hitting the ocean surface, and we're hearing them very clearly 3,000 feet below. <laughs> <laughs> So that kind of comes in, though, to what you guys are you have been studying with blue whales, right? Because you're hearing, are you using data about the wind from the hydrophone, or are you just looking at oceanographic data and like upwelling data? Well, I'm Caitlin. I'm glad you raise all the different things we can hear because for the Earth, you know, sounds of the Earth, it is wind and rain, earthquakes, submarine landslides, and um for noise from human activities it's shipping noise and other things shipping noise we heard the ocean get quieter during covid mm-hmm. because shipping traffic reduced um so now what what i the really interesting topic i think you're moving into is if we can hear the wind and the wind drives the ocean circulation that the whales are responding to are they actually what is what are they what are their sensory cues mm-hmm. What are they keying off of? Because they they are swimming through a vast ocean to find pretty small scale ocean circulation features within which their prey are aggregated. So every bit of effort they put into foraging will give them much greater gain, much greater energy because the food is dense. So what are they keying off of? Is it the sound of the wind that tells them uh, wind-driven upwelling is happening? do they have memory of where these filaments of coastal ocean circulation develop so that when they hear the wind, they can right away respond and move over there? Or is it the cold temperature near the surface that results from wind-driven upwelling? Do they swim around and feel that cold water and say, ah, this is probably a good spot? Or are they just listening to each other? We'll never know. That's the problem. No, maybe we will know. We, I think we have some hints from other research. All right. Well, I'm excited to learn. Yes. So what is, I kind of read the the paper that you guys have just put out and I read your press release from Ambari. So what are kind of the takeaways from the latest blue whale work you guys have done? It seems like they do cue on the wind or maybe all the features that go along with what the ocean feels and sounds like after it's been windy. Yes. Um, as the, the title begins, oceanic giants dance to atmospheric rhythms. And what that means is we watch them move. We listened to them move really <laughs> um, in response to these cycles in the wind that we're all familiar with. Um, and of course it, Many people who spend time on the water will pay attention to this aspect of the wind, whether it's just 
I sure don't want to be offshore now because the upwelling winds are so strong that conditions would be really rough to uh, other people who might tune into it for how that affects fishing opportunities through circulation. Mm -hmm. And so um, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> so um, I'm getting it back to your question, which you're going to ask again. <laughs> so do, based on your work that you just did, do you think the whales are directly responding to the wind or is it all the cues that go with it for the upwelling cycle? Yeah, yeah. I think um, the, the key thing that this research showed for the first time, because nobody's tracked a blue whale population this way before. Mm -hmm. And we did that through two years. And there were, there were a number of constraints because I need to back up to the hypothesis. Three years ago, Kelly Benoit Bird led a study that showed how krill and anchovies swarm in response to upwelling. Mm -hmm. They form really dense aggregations. And for these filter feeding baleen whales, um, they really need to find these dense patches in order to make the effort of foraging worth it so they can have a, a net energy gain. And so with Kelly's findings right in Monterey Bay, we predicted that blue whales and other baleen whales with their millions of years of evolving to find these patches would know to, to move into these coastal upwelling filaments when they occur. Mm -hmm. So we did actually predict that and we just didn't have the tools to study it until recently. Yeah. And so what we observed specifically is that when the whales were located within our hearing range, there's only one upwelling center in this region that's within our hearing range and that's Año Nuevo. Right. Where upwelling starts there, it flows southeastward along the coast and some flows into Monterey Bay. Mm -hmm. And what we observed through repeated cycles of upwelling intensification and relaxation is that when it upwelled, the whales moved around the compass into Monterey Bay. We could see their bearing, the bearings to these calling animals move into the bay, which is very consistent with taking advantage of good foraging conditions. And then we also learned that when the winds relaxed um, and upwelling was not present, the whales moved into offshore habitat. Then the thing, the important thing about that is that region of offshore habitat that we can hear is transected by four shipping lanes, mm -hmm. which is ship strikes are a primary threat to blue whales. Um, yeah. And so if we are interested in supporting recovery of this endangered species and um, fin whales as well, any whales that can be hit by ship strikes. This is really relevant information for informing management. Yeah, um, definitely. So the upwelling plume, if I was looking at the map in the paper, so it kind of comes down from Anya Nuevo and there's a bunch of like finger projection canyons and then Soquel Canyon, that whole area gets washed with with cold nutrient rich water. And that that lines up with where we do tend to see blue whales when they show up, right? They're kind of within our range from Moss Landing at Soquel where we go look. Um, but do they kind of come from all directions when you're tracking them approaching the area from offshore or are they coming from somewhere specific? Like, are they always coming from the north? Are they always coming from the west? 
Yeah, in this study, we since we had to focus on one upwelling plume and the limits of how far away we can hear, all we could hear was that they were clearly moving from offshore, meaning also off the continental shelf in deep water, uh, up in into shelf waters and into the bay. Okay. Um, now, where they came from, you if you look if you look at the amount of calling as a function of time and bearing, you can actually see the tracks of individual animals that are calling. And you can see how they're moving around the That's compass. Cool. You still don't quite have how far away they are to draw yeah. them on the map, but we're getting there. Yeah. Um, so in answer to your question, I'll, I'll bring up another study that's in progress now. We observed during a different year that both blue and fin whales moved into Monterey Bay when ocean physics did something unusual. <laughs> they, and in this case, they came from different places. The blue whales came up from points, the Point Sur upwelling region, mm -hmm. and the fin whales came from offshore and toward a bearing, a bearing toward Davidson Seamount. But when, when the physics of the ocean did something weird and wonderful, both species immediately at the same time started moving up toward Monterey Bay. Some of the, their populations remained anchored and calling in the places where they were, but some of the individuals moved up into the bay. Like some went up to test it and they're like, let's see how good it really is in Monterey. <laughs> they're like, hey, yeah. this sounds weird. I want to check it out. <laughs> and that would make a lot of sense later because what if conditions aren't that good? You don't want everybody wasting their energy going up there, but if it's good and they can vocally signal to each other. Yeah, no problem, right? No problem. Yeah. Come on yeah. up. So and like Monterey Bay to David T. Mount underwater for them communication, nothing. Yeah. Nothing. They could well, not, hear both places. Not nothing, but it's like they just go down to the bottom. They're like, yo, Ted, come hit up the, this, you know, Carmel with me. It's good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> Pretty and, much verbatim, just like that. <laughs> is it upwelling? But towards that north part of the bay, like Anya, Soquel, that area, is it just because the way the wind's hitting there or is it happening? It's happening in Carmel as well, right? It's happening all along the shelf or where it's coming up. Yeah, upwelling can originate along a fairly broad swath of the, the coast, but there are these, it's, it's a combination of the wind-driven circulation and the shape of the coast and seafloor. So you tend to get upwelling centers, they're called, mm. where the the upwelling tends to come to the surface and create a filament that then flows sinuously through the coastal ocean. And it, for here, it's Point uh, Año Nuevo and Point Sur that are the primary upwelling centers. That said, at other times, the winds blow in such a way that the whole coast will erupt with so upwelling. It may happen there, but then once it's up, it could spread out too. Exactly. Like the nutrients spread out and then like you know everything spreads out, right? Yeah, and also spreads hundreds of kilometers offshore. Wow. But I want to, I want to come back to one of your questions, which is, or, you know, your, your description of how they might communicate these things. And, and the reason I think they're able to listen to each other, of course, within a species, but maybe also between species, is work led by Dave Cade, at, who was at the time a grad student at Stanford, now a postdoc there. And what Dave did is to bring together all the observations you need to understand why the whales are there and how it is that 
as many as 40 blue whales will come together in a small space to forage. Mm -hmm. And that's what they observed. That's what they observed from the boat. And they tagged some of those whales. And the key finding from Ambari's hydrophone that Will A. Strike led is, okay, these whales came together. We happened to encounter these blue whale supergroups on two occasions. What was happening in the soundscape, the blue whale soundscape at the time? And what Will found is blue whales were putting, uh, were producing a distinct call type. It's a decall. It's a down sweep from, say, 90 hertz down to maybe 30 over four to five seconds. At the end of it, you know, the room is shaking with your subwoofer. <laughs> <laughs> but what he found is that there was an exceptionally high level of activity of this type of call right before the blue whales came together in large numbers. And, and that is the interpretation that Dave put forward in that paper. It's an acoustic signpost. Hey, everybody, we found the natural restaurant that is open today. There's so much krill here. I could never stuff myself with all of it. So let's share. And the next time you find one of these, let me know, will you? Uh, and, you know, these what what Dave showed from drone footage um, from Stanford and Duke as well, they were observing these whales using drones. And you could see four giant blue whales all headed from slightly different directions, but toward this aggregation site where foraging was off the charts. Wow. That's so cool. Uh, see, that's what's awesome about that is I want to go back to all the days that we had like really good lunch feeding and yeah. see if the humpbacks were like getting super vocal the day before or like, you know what I mean? Or like they knew something. Mm -hmm. uh, the humpbacks move around so much though, but I mean, the blue whales do as, as well, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I just wonder how much more vocal they get right before like a good lunch feeding day happens. Well, we're, we're working on the data you need for that. And here's the trick. Blue whale bee calls are easy to spot. They're very distinct. Pretty narrow frequency band. Nothing else really putting a lot of energy into that band except ships sometime. But you can, you can separate those out very easily and only get your biological signal that you want. D calls are harder because humpbacks are putting sounds into that frequency band. Mm -hmm. So are fin whales at times. So uh, an algorithm trying to find those D calls the dinner calls, it seems, <laughs> um, are they're they're thwarted by the complexity of the soundscape. And we're what we're working on now. Danelle Klein is the lead engineer on our project, and she's working with a undergraduate um, student at Stanford and with Will A. Strike and myself to help us uh, enable things like machine learning and clustering to distinguish those blue whale decals so that we can get that time series. And you could go back to your logs and say, were decals off the charts at this time when we saw the blue whales coming together? Mm -hmm. So we're, we're getting to that point, but it's always a requirement of developing the methods to get those reliable results. Right. It's probably, I guess it's not surprising to know that the decal is like kind of messy because there's other whales calling in that same frequency because a lot of the time if you see a lot of blue whales there's at least one or two fin whales around and there's usually humpbacks around so maybe it makes sense that they all talk in that frequency band because they do all share the same food item 
that's an interesting hypothesis. Another yeah, because otherwise, how would maybe, they sort the signal? And out? think about it. Yeah, that would only be if it's krill because you're not going to have the humpbacks. They prey switch, right? But like yeah. the blue whale only eats krill. Fin whales yeah. prey switch as well, but not they're they're more focused on krill, I I guess, right? I mean, we only really see them consistently if there's a lot of krill. Yeah. Yep. yep. So. Oh, that's women. Let's back up on that. So you only see, of course, blue whales are definitely they have to prey on krill. Fin whales, it's been questionable whether they have a slightly more diverse diet, but what I hear is they mostly forage on krill. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that fits with your observations? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Cool. Yeah, cool. there's only one time that I can remember in the last eight years where we had a lot of fin whales and no blue whales, and that was in the fall of 2016. But we were seeing birds that forage on krill in the same area as the fin whales. So I don't know if it was just a weird timing thing and a lot of the blue whales were further away and these fin whales just marched in from offshore which is kind of what we saw and then hung around for like a week and then dispersed but for the most part if you see a lot of blue whales then you're also looking for fin whales fascinating well another data point for you then the highest level of fin whale calling we have recorded ever in our seven years was fall of 2016 yeah that matches what we saw on the I water. I wasn't here. Okay. Yeah. Right? No, not yet. I think no, I think came I like a month after. Yeah, I came in November, so. Yeah. Like late November, though. Bummer. Yeah. yeah. But, but we had, think about like the blue, the my video of the blue whale from the drone pooping and the humpback swimming through it and it's krill. <laughs> but there was blue whales, humpbacks, and, and fin, fin whales there that yep. day. That was like 2017. Yeah. Or and that, that winter through 2016 to 2017, um, we saw blue whales every month of the year, including yeah. like in January. And we were like, what are these things doing here right now? Hang on, hang on. <laughs> was that drone footage, very interesting sounding drone footage you just mentioned. Was it fall of 2017, like late October-ish? Uh, I think it was spring of 2017 where the blue whale, fin whale, and humpback yeah, were Yeah, because we were all day trips, right? Yeah, so it was like May. Of it was like okay. yeah, it was spring. Okay, you were about to be a co-author on the next study. Well, I mean, he does have <laughs> some footage from the fall of 2017 too. I just don't know if it's exactly what you want. <laughs> yeah. Well, we should follow up on that because yeah. that period is fascinating for for the blue and fin whales converging, a strange attractor in Monterey Bay, and you know, you mentioned prey switching earlier. There's another study we're working on that really is about exploring acoustic behavior of bluefin and humpback whales in relation to uh, foraging ecology and the unique ability of humpbacks to so readily prey switch. Yeah. I, yeah. I don't even know. Was that the same, is that the same year that I got the humpback lunch feeding on krill? Yes. I Man, I yeah. wish they lunch fed on krill. It is so much easier because like the thing is the, the school- drone. Well, I guess it could be crazier if the krill patch was massive, but like the, in this day in particular, we had like, I don't know if let's just say it was the size of like a pizza. It looked like from the drone and the humpback would just come up and then do a side lunge on this little red circle. And it was perfect. So I could just go from krill patch to krill patch and get it like no problem. <laughs> so, yeah, it was pretty cool. Easier to line up the flight pattern. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I bet oh, that's man. The first there's time. so many cool things. Yeah. 
I'm thinking that's the first time that a drone flight maybe uh, was designed that way. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so cool. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, that all that stuff is we could talk to you all night about the hydro, yeah. but I feel like this stuff is really cool. Um, do you have any idea, like, do you have any rare species that the hydrophone is recorded for our area that you know of, like pilot whales or like anything super? Oh yeah, that we've missed. Yeah. Like I know well, we have beaked whales and sperm whales and you know. Well, let's let's actually start with sperm whales because I feel like one of the unique opportunities of us recording continuously is to really get a, a sense acoustically. How often do we hear them? How often are they mm -hmm. present? Because they do tend to be offshore and they yeah. do tend to be unseen. Mm -hmm. So the reports are fairly infrequent, but Will A-Strike just took up the challenge of sifting through our 180 terabytes for sperm whales. And oh, we've been working on improving the methods and, you know, the ground truth, is this really working? And he's now processed a full year of data. And the preliminary result is that we're hearing um, sperm whales on about half of all days. Wow. And Wait. that might be surprising. Say that again. Half of like every day? Half like of all days in that day. year. Like half of the oh my gosh so so i think you know sperm whales aren't the most cryptic species visually but they're pretty far offshore and they are mm -hmm. hard to track visually so if we can take advantage of their powerful calls to better detect them that's what this this first study is about how much are they really using this habitat how much of the year what are the seasonal patterns what are their interannual changes mm -hmm. because this ecosystem changes so much year to year yeah. And so even though they're not the most cryptic, I think they're the one we want to focus on first for odontocetes because they still are somewhat mysterious visually. And yeah. Can you tell the clicks of like the beaked whale? You could tell the difference pretty easy. Um, there are methods to distinguish clicks for sure. And some people have done that with our data. Um, I have not studied odontocy clicks really at all okay. yet. I've focused on the baleen whales. So like, for example, we initially, when we first started recording, we just shipped a bunch of our data to researchers at Scripps who were already doing that. To the, what was it to, like, to the Hildebrand, Hildebrand lab and stuff? Yeah. Yeah. They've got so much good experience with that. Okay. Um, one thing that did happen though, with a postdoc at Ambari, Sam Ermey, he came and he worked with Kelly Benoit Bird and me. And what he did was to bring together what you can observe of predator and prey in the same place. So at the observatory, you've got, you're listening for the echolocation clicks of the animals. And if you hear them and they're fairly high frequency, they're going to be pretty close to your receiver. Right. So you know you've got a pretty local view of the echolocators. And then you've got the echo sounder telling you about the behavior of the fish schools over the observatory. And what he showed, what he and Kelly showed really beautifully is that fish that are not supposed to be able to hear the echolocation clicks of these odontocetes were diving frantically concurrently when there were bursts of echolocation clicks. Mm, so they're running away. They are running away, oh. trying to get beyond the breath hold range perhaps 
<laughs> um, but there's a lot of it, as every good study does, it answers questions, reveals things we haven't seen before, and then it leaves you with a bunch more good questions. <laughs> and so it's amazing about, I guess, just the ocean in general, just leave, every time you find, think you find something, it just leaves you with like 26 more questions. <laughs> yep. Yep. So, but that was a great study where the odontocete study connected right to the prey field, to the forage species ecology. And so we, we do want to go more in that direction and we are going to continue aiming tool development at that mountain of growing mountain of acoustic data. Wow. Cool. Oh man. Uh, so before we wrap up, I just want to give you an opportunity to share with people, like how can they find your work or support your work or learn more about what you guys are all doing at Embari? Um, you guys use, you have pretty good social media coverage, but also you guys have like websites and stuff too, right? That's right. And there's a good connection there. Our communications department does a wonderful job of telling stories from this research, sharing them and through both, you know, maybe it's just a web story or a press release and social media campaign, but it's a, we do try to get the share the wonders of ocean life this way. And then other opportunities, you know, this project, the Ocean Soundscape Project has, from the start, focused on engaging with the public and sharing this new knowledge that we're, we're gaining by listening. So, for example, we developed a public exhibit. It's resident at the Sanctuary Exploration Center across from the wharf in Santa Cruz. And there you can get a sampling of ocean sound, including those low-frequency rumbles from earthquakes and whales that are gigantic. Um, we did clone that exhibit for the San Simeon Visitor Center, the Coastal Discovery Center, also part of the sanctuary. Um, we just deployed a small version of it at the Santa Cruz Museum of Natural History, where I gave a talk uh, last week. And I'll be at their event this Saturday sharing fairly spooky sounds from the soundscape <laughs> of the ocean and a continuous um, audio-visual presentation for three hours, and I'll be there answering questions. So we definitely try to get out to events and, and share all the ways we can, because, you know, how can anyone feel a connection to life that lives in such a different way beneath mm -hmm. the waves? Uh, it's hard to connect. Whale watching is an amazing way to do that and engages our sense yeah. of being on the ocean and our sight, which is such a powerful sense for us. Um, and yet hearing the, the sounds produced by the animals is a powerful way to connect. And that's the only way we can um, both feel the connection and, and, and care about what's happening to these animals and how we can in, change the way we live to better support their lives or even their recoveries from severe decimation or near extinction yeah well i mean roger payne i think had it right where he's like the people need to hear the whales for us to save them you know yeah absolutely you bring it back to the most um influential introduction <laughs> of whale sound to the world um and what a what a positive impact it had yeah I mean, if I'm, if I'm going to move someone to tears on a whale watch that wasn't already so excited that they're going to just cry when they see a whale anyway, 
the best way to do it is put the hydrophone in the water. Like in Maui, when we play the whale song, that's when I get people starting to tear up on the boat because it's like so <laughs> visceral, you know? Yeah. So, um, so people can follow along with you guys. Your website is mbari.org, right? That's right. And I will say we're in the process of reshaping our website, but right now you could search for Ambari Soundscape and that will bring you right to our content. Cool. Awesome. Well, this has been so fun. Thank yeah. you, John. Thank you this so much amazing. for being here. Totally fun. Uh, so when can I sign up again? <laughs> right now. We're Once ready to schedule you again. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much. Um, I really appreciate your good work and um, I look forward to the next opportunity to collaborate in some way anyway. Yes. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Thank you. And thank you everyone for listening. <laughs>